0: Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack, pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership, an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com.
1: Hi, everyone. Hi, Stan. Hi, Gil. Hey,
0: Anne. Hey, Hi, Stan. Dan.
1: Well, thank you all so much for joining us after a very wild weekend. We are very happy to be here with Stan. He's going to be talking about the evolution of Calibra's product and positioning and how they created a category.
0: Hey, Stan. So, th- first of all, thanks so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. So, You're one of the founders of Calibra, if I'm not mistaken, and you currently lead Calibra's data office. Stan is responsible for overall data strategy, data infrastructure, and translating internal learnings into value for customers and partners. He's also the product evangelist, driving future innovation. Previously, Stan launched various departments within Calibra, including product, pre-sales, post-sales, partnerships, marketplace, and research and education. So very broad view of the company and all of its various activities. Calibra was founded in Brussels in 2008 by four founders and raised a total of nearly $600 million from a tier one list of investors, including Index, Iconic, Battery, Capital G, which is Google's venture capital firm, and Sequoia. The company's a leader in the data intelligence category, providing a range of tooling that are part of the modern data stack. And we'll talk about what all that means. But that includes data quality and observability, data governance, data cataloging, and data lineage. Most recently, the company was valued at billion billion. Calibra works with over 500 global enterprises including seven of the 10 largest pharmaceutical companies 70 percent of the largest u.s banks maybe we can talk about banking a bit and several of the world's largest retailers currently the company operates in the us australia belgium france the uk and poland so this is really truly a european-born global enterprise category killer. Angular, unfortunately, has no official relationship with this company, but it is a phenomenal success story. And we're super excited to have Stan here. We know that a lot of you are probably focused on uh, Silicon Valley Bank and the fallout and the meltdown in the global banking sector, but I think it'd be fun to have a conversation that's not about banking in too much detail. So Stan, where I wanted to start is today, if you go to the Calibra website, you guys have a suite of products. So my question is, what was the first product? I and mean, what was the company's founding insight? What did you guys see about where DataOps was headed that the rest of the market didn't understand?
2: Thanks for the introduction. When you see the list of all the things you've done over 15 years, and when you hear the list of all the things that the company is doing, it's a long list. But don't forget, we've been doing this for really nearly 15 years. And if you go back all the way to 2008, where we started, really we started even a year ago because it took us a years to, to start a company. We were very young at that time. And what we originally started out with, with the four founders, and then added another founder uh, many about a year later, because we realized, wait a moment, maybe our team isn't as complete as we had thought it was. But originally our position that we took in the market was a semantic data integration position. And then we had to pivot a little bit. And the pivots that we did, and we can elaborate on the pivoting thing, of course, but the pivot that we did was towards... Also, where we came from, right? We came from a university, we're a spin-off from the Free University of Brussels. We essentially started with the product that would be called the Business Semantics Glossary. So the word semantics is very important there and the word business as well. Glossary, of course, as well, still misunderstood by most people. And from that position and from our history and from the trends in the market at that time, we moved that to what is currently described as the data intelligence cloud. But in those early days, we would call it the business semantic glossary was part of the data governance center, right? So the Data Governance Center was really a suite, if you will. And the Data Intelligence Cloud is now more of a cloud service with a lot of components in it. But originally, if we go back to those early days and we skip the semantic data integration bit for just a second, uh, that it would be the Business Semantics Glossary as part of the Data Governance Center, DGC, as we still call it. What is or what was a
0: Business Semantics Glossary? It's not a term that I've heard before. Can you explain what that Product and how you guys reached the insight that was going to be the MVP because founders always talking about MVP, MVP, MVP. How did you guys come to that conclusion that this product was both small enough that you guys could build it, but big enough that it would be valuable for customers?
2: Uh, MVP is a hard thing. I always, when I meet a new founder, a first time entrepreneur, I always tell them plan for three years of messy MVP finding you're finding your place in the market really and the way we did it so one angle is the background we came from right so we knew that there was a better way of dealing with data and that required a better sense making in between people right where which is where glossary fits in as a process rather than as an end result and another portion was okay we were coming out of that semantic data integration corners. So so again, the semantics bit uh, is popping up there and then very close to the semantic data integration, which was a sort of enablers to move data from source A to B and automatically translate some stuff in between. But to create those semantics, you needed a collaborative layer. We had a fat client at the time and Eclipse, the business semantic studio, but we had also the more business friendly, -friendly, user-friendly web-based thing, which was the business semantic glossary. Uh, and as to how we found that again, so we have the angle of uh, a our history and already being in market, starting the company in 2008. But then we really started the way that anybody would start, which is let's put something together in the short time that we still have. And I think we started with a very early stage prototype that was even built on top of some wiki platform at that time, which allowed us to very quickly put something out there in the hands of users, if you will, and very quickly iterate on it, right? And, and using that whole approach, we were able to lock down pretty quickly. Okay. This is where it's going to go. This is where we will get value, but we could only do that again, based on the experience where we came from at the university, the research, and we could only do that because we were already in market, right? So we were already talking to people. We were already engaging with them. We already had their interest around the semantics fit. So we were already in a place where we could throw something new in the mix and then ask them, what do you think about this? Maybe that's better, right? So we already had that initial contact with a number of users. But then from that point, to say that was an MVP is a big word. From that point, we still had a whole journey to make, finding, you know, more of those early stage prospects, customers in enough industries with enough use cases around it to really test. Is this something that's only for that one prospect we're talking to or? and we find the hands full to want to get behind. Just to make sure, and I, I,
0: I apologize for forcing you to go slowly here, but what exactly is a business semantic glossary? Like, how did you explain that to customers back then? They always, they had databases, they were running queries, they were piping those queries into dashboards and tools and analytics, right? You know, they, they were using their databases, right? They were getting data out. You show up and say, I've got a business semantics glossary. Did they say, oh, thank God, I've been looking for one of those? Or did you have to explain to them what it was and and what exactly is it?
2: The moment in time when people come to you and say, I've been looking for one of those, Mm -hmm. the moment you're already way past the MVP. I know, that's that's why I'm asking. That's where you want to get. So what is it? Like, uh, what was it? uh, In the markets, people already had business glossaries. That concept already existed and still exists today, but it's typically seen by 99.9999% of the world as a list of terms that are important to your business, like ARR um, and a whole so bunch was of- it, Was
0: it literally that. a table of term and then definition in English? Is that what, it, is that what a business
2: glossary is Yeah, terms and definitions, that's what a business glossary is. But because we had that semantics background and there's a lot of semantics lovers out there in the world, we knew that the business glossary and the list of terms and definitions is not something anyone really needs. The semantics bit is that, okay, there's the taxonomy that, like, certain of your business terms have a hierarchy to them. And then if you go a step further in the semantics, you end up in ontologies. For example, there's relations between those business terms as well. So a lot of those. Semantics components are still in our software in some way, but we did realize also it, that semantics has a little bit of a gonad thing to it, right? The people who practice semantics really love semantics, but that doesn't mean everyone else in the organization is that big of a fan to go all that deep on the semantics topic. So it's still in there, like those taxonomies and whatnot, but we went to a broader audience from that first, let's say, batch of semantics lovers. So
0: presumably your product, like you would go to a customer and you would say you need a, a more advanced business semantics glossary than the file, the static file that you have that some person in your team who loves semantics is editing all the time. Is that what and then there's benefits that they could get if they upgraded? Right. Cause I'm assuming customers like some of them probably didn't have that and most of them probably had it. And they probably their default response would have been, well, I already have one. I've got this file. I can show it to you. Right. Why do I need to pay well, you to is- make another one of these? Right.
2: This is where we started to notice in the market: do they have something, but what they had was attached to their data management platforms. So typically we would find it around an ETL platform, like an Informatica power center or an IBM data stage, for example, right? What we today call data pipeline software, software, potato potato, right? But essentially those tools were built for technical audiences. And what we noticed is that sense making amongst people is a business activity. They have the knowledge about what a metric means and how it's calculated, for example. So they needed to upgrade. And the software that they had didn't allow them, even from a user interface point of view, to go to the IT people in the companies and our customers. They were not able to go to their business stakeholders because they were putting a tool in front of them that just didn't resonate with them. In in our case, we put something in front of them that didn't make sense. Oh, so I can just take this approved, but oh, so I can just put my picture there. And then I know I'm the owner for this data. So
0: it sounds like the insight, part of the insight was, but please tell me if I'm getting this right. Part of the original insight was you've got this thing called a business semantic glossary, which is useful, right? But that it would be even more useful if business people who are not data people can interact with it. And that... Calibra made it possible for collaboration to start up in between the consumers of this data and therefore the ultimate beneficiaries of having a glossary and the data ops people or IT ops people who were messing around with the data but needed the business glossary to know what they were talking about. And yes, had, exactly. Right,
2: Organizations needed to have ownership around data established on the business side. And they looked to us as the, the only possible way, tool, that they could put in front of the business to try and get them on board. How did you communicate the
0: value of that thing to customers, right? How did you think about pricing? How did you communicate the value? Presumably, customers would want to get 5x or 10x ROI on this. What were you charging and how how are you justifying that pricing?
2: Well, in the very early days, you get whatever you can get, right? So if we skip that data integration bit for a second, and we focus on the data governance center uh, position we were at, so we're a few years into Colibra already, Mm -hmm. about two to three years. And in those early days, pricing-wise, you're looking at five figures, whatever we could get, essentially, because we had no name, we had no brand, we had not a lot of customers. We were very early in those days. Data governance didn't, like the traction on it hadn't started yet. It only came after 2012 to 2014, I would say. But essentially, we did notice that some uh, customers in the market, like for example, back in those days, HSBC, they had these one HSBC initiatives. So these large enterprises, they were always trying to get, okay, we want to get to one definition of customer, for example. right? Or if we speak about ERR, we want it to mean the same thing across the whole organization. So those projects already did exist in certain organizations we had a lot of regulatory pressures, maybe, or very complex information or very complex organizations, typically larger enterprise, typically like financial services, pharmaceuticals, for example. And those were already doing those things. So they were looking for something and we were the only thing they could find that gave them an answer sure, at the time.
0: And was it that collaboration with the business users that was the key selling of this MVP? Was that the same? Yeah. That was definitely a key selling point,
2: definitely.
0: I'm just curious how you translated that selling point into ROI, right? Was it you, could, you can avoid meetings? Was it that you can avoid mistakes? Was it that you can avoid regulatory scrutiny? Like, why should I pay you 50K for this? Is it because, like, how am I going to explain that to the CFO of why we need to do this? Why can't I just use the so, old file we had before?
2: Well, there was definitely, because those files didn't exist or they were long out of date and they would not, creating engagement, it was just a dead file, a static file, Uh, but essentially there's an efficiency play that was possible, right? For example, you have so many analysts across your organization and all of them are spending so much time doing that, looking for data, trying to figure it out what it means. And by putting this in place, you can make them 10, 20, 30, whatever percentage more efficient, thereby saving them This many hours leading to that many dollars or euros, but it was even, it was even better, like the efficiency I would say was a baseline. For example, one of the cases that we saw and it's still relevant today is you had this proliferation of self-service BI, right? The tableaus, the clicks, and now the new and the power BI's, all of that stuff, put a lot of the visualization reporting capability in the hands of a lot of users. So now every department, every silo in an organization could come up with their customer dashboards, right? Whereby a CIO would then ask, well, how many customers do we have? And, uh, you know, somebody in operations would come up with a dashboard that said 80,000. Somebody in sales would come up with a dashboard that said 800,000. And as a CEO, if you have to make a decision at that level, that it's impossible. Farmer's wisdom says take the lowest, take the highest. Could it enhance the number? But you can't really operate that way. So our software gave them an instrument that allowed these people, the stakeholders from the different business functions, sales, marketing, operations, whatever, to get together and get on the same page so that self-service BI and proliferation problem had a chance of being resolved. And that's still a use case for using Calibra today, which is many years late.
0: Got it. You touched on this. You talked about the different personas that benefited from the tool. You know, a lot of companies are struggling to define these things. It's really helpful to listen to someone just think back on this. How did you guys think about your ideal customer profile? And more specifically, the buyer persona? Because you mentioned a lot of different personas. Who is the ultimate decision maker on this thing? And how did you navigate to that person when you're trying to make a sale?
2: So in the early days, there was most of us were just searching for that, right? So we'd meet, for example, data architects or BI managers, et cetera. But as I mentioned... In 2012, there was a regulation that came into play, BCBS 239. And by the way, that was a response to the 2008 financial crisis where none of the biggest banks could actually explain their risk towards other banks. They had the reports, but nobody could trust the numbers essentially. So they were told, you need to have a chief data officer, you need to do data governance, you need to do data quality, and you need to be able to explain the Swiss report, how those numbers are calculated to put trust in those, in, in those reports. So at that time, we did see the ICP exist. So there was only financial services, first the biggest ones, then the regionally, domestically systematically important banks. And then the chief data officer really started to come into the bay. So as a main buying persona around 2012, we're looking at maybe, I don't know, 20 chief data officers worldwide, but those became our target. And those programs were exactly what our software could offer a solution for. And that was even more than just an efficiency play, right? Because at that time, what happened was people were looking at data governance, which is the the smaller version of the bigger data intelligence category. We grew it, if you will. We'll get back to that. Essentially, at that time, people looked at data governance and they said, oh, this is a people and process problem. Software cannot solve it. This is a people and process problem, which is the same as saying, well, CRM is also a people and process problem. But if you want to solve it at scale, you need a system of engagement for that specific asset. And the same thing came true for data governance, right? People were saying it's a people and process problem. We cannot solve it. And then Calibra came on the market with, hey, we have a software that allows you to actually run this people and process problem at scale in your organization. And for the first time, I'm, and I saw it in many people's eyes, you know, when the eyes light up in the meeting, this really happened. So there were a lot of consultants in the room, and some were even sitting on the window sill because they were probably junior analysts. There, were, there wasn't even a chair for them. And then you would have some banking people around, around the room, and they would literally role play the people in process aspect of being a data steward and doing data governance thing on paper. Whereas I was sitting in that meeting, and I would just, make the workflow immediately inside the software at the same time they were doing it on paper then i would just turn around the screen and show them the buttons that they could now click for those business stakeholders in the room it started to make sense okay for me to execute on data governance or data responsibilities all i got to do is click this approve button or do this thing and that thing and then it started to resonate with them otherwise Data governance was a very abstract conceptual thing and nobody could really figure out what are you actually expecting of me, and how should I execute all those responsibilities? So we made it come alive. ICP at that time, financial services, biggest ones, then smaller ones. And then around 2014, we essentially fanned out, right? Those programs and the role went into all industries. So we started to expand our time from financial services to pharmaceuticals, telco, government, utilities, and now these data programs are everywhere.
1: That's awesome. So we actually got a great question from Meg Porter. She's the head of product and design at Vault Platform, which is actually uh, one of our portfolio companies of ours. They're a terrific company. And she's asking, what did the evolution feel like along the way? Who within the business led the positioning discussions and pricing discussions in the team? Did you find product-led discussions? Where were the biggest frictions in storming and norming the product story?
2: There's a lot of questions (laughs) in one go. I don't know if I'll remember (laughs) them all, but but they're all really good. Thank you for the question, Meg. And indeed, good company. What did the evolution feel like? I can start with an easily. It's looking back at it, it's all clear and you can apply a rationale on it and logic. This is how we did it. But... In the moment itself, it felt very messy, you know, And there's because you're, you're lacking a lot of information. You're in this fog of war. You don't have a complete view of the market. You don't have tens or even hundreds of customers that you can go ask about. The analysts are saying things that don't necessarily match with what you're experiencing with a few customers you do already have. So it's, there's a lot of fog of war. So there's a feeling of uncertainty and there's a little bit of, okay, we We could take this feature, or we could take that feature, or we could take this positioning or that positioning. But you're never really quite sure. So you do have to experiment a little bit. And I do remember that as a founding team or as a management team at that time, do also have to come together and duke it out a little bit, right? Because as you as a company don't have a full view of the market, but you as an individual or a founder or a management member, you also don't have a full view, right? So I would be doing certain meetings or have certain conversations or certain trade shows or whatnot. And then Benny or Felix or the others, they would be having other ones. And then you bring those different perspectives together. And it like, no, oh, it's like this. No, oh, it's like this. that. So there's some friction there out of which diamonds can be born if you respect each other and you can have the fights, but you have to also converge. And then later on, we did get support for those bigger positioning stories. So, you know, we, we do some marketing consultants who helped with how do you do positioning and brand positioning and what's the promise. And then in 2014, when we went, went into the US for the first time and got a chief marketing officer for the first time, we went a lot deeper into those positioning exercises. And some of what we do today in positioning can still be traced back to those early 2014-15 brand positioning exercises. So it was mixed, but there was definitely found the lead. And then later on, also senior managers we hired, like chief marketing officer or somebody who led products. It was a zigzag, I would say, with some experimenting in between and a lot of conversations, a lot of discussion internally, of course
0: we're getting two questions from two founders here, and it's really interesting. They go one after the other. So Ira Laksanen, who's the CEO of Valohyde is asking, when you were searching for ICP and looking for companies to talk to, how did you do pipeline generation? Which I think is, you know, so the very top of funnel kind of problem, and then we'll follow with the other questions.
2: You have to put it in context, we were in Belgium, small country in a European market, Very fragmented and doing prospecting in the U S by flying in and out. We did that for five years, whereby we would be away from home more during those five years than we would be all. So a lot of experimentation to it, but ultimately our lead generation was done over, I think four areas. So we'd have our website. We'd have some online webinars, which wasn't that big of a thing at that time. It was the time of go to meeting, all you can meet. And then we'd have some trade shows. We did a lot of trade shows as well, which you have a lot more in the U.S. Compared to Europe, it's really fragmented. You know, you have to go to a French trade show, speak French, and you have to go to a German trade show and bring out your best German. Fortunately, we speak all the languages in Europe, obviously, right? But it's a lot more fragmented in Europe than it was in the United States, I would say in the United States, they're more ads in terms of setting up a new trade show for a new topic. So they're experimenting more, I felt. Uh, But essentially, that's where we got our leads from. So trade shows, webinars, the website and ads. And then we also had this thing which you would call today influencers. So by being in the market, we noticed that there were really like thought leaders or gurus in our space, some of which I still know very well today. Essentially, we said, okay, let's connect with those people because they know this topic very well for 10 years already or longer. They've written books on it. So we'll connect with them and we'll make sure that they know what we're doing and that they can give their opinion on what we're doing and the can be involved. And then hopefully that'll bring us to their networks as well. So- those would be the four areas we used to do lead generation. But as soon as we came back from the trade show, all of us were on the phone from 8 a.m. in the morning to 8 p.m. in the evening to dial all those numbers. And like 95% of the time, nobody picks up. So it's not just going there and generating the lead. It's also doing all along. The
0: I'd love to follow up on that a little bit because some of the things you mentioned were active. So like influencers and trade shows, that's kind of like, like going out there either someone else is talking to the market and telling people about you or you're at a trade show and you're trying to get as many business cards as you can and trying to follow up and you know a lot of companies that we work with those are good strategies and those leads as you say 5% response rate is phenomenal if you can get that going right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so Some other things you described, you talked about websites, webinars, those kind of things. Those are passive, right? Were you, were you buying advertising?
2: How are you driving people to your webinars? The webinars oftentimes were organized by certain channels already. So it has people who organize trade shows, like Enterprise Data World, for example, in the US. And they'd also have maybe an online component or a trade magazine, Information informationmanagement.com or something like that. And then they'd host webinars. So uh, some of these webinars, you could just would buy them, and then they would guarantee like 400 leads or something.
1: Awesome. So we got a great question from Yaniv Benhemo, who is the CEO of Memphis.dev. They're a modern data pipeline company. And he was asking, what was the play or motion or pressure points you used that brought cold targets to the first meeting? It's
2: buried a lot over those early years. So, and again, the early years, first three years, you're looking for your Position right? So you're doing a lot of experimentation, but once we started to notice something that worked, whether it was on the semantic data integration side or the business semantics glossary or what have you, which found us like the train shows, for example, you would on the webinars, you do a few of the wrong ones, right? We went to, um, like an, a service oriented architecture trade show, which was you know, an attempt and it didn't work. So we're like, okay, we don't need to. So, Ultimately, we did close down on audience. So you're looking maybe at data architects or, or what have you. And then you learned for those people, what they cared about. For example, for a data architect, it would be, oh, enterprise conceptual model or the enterprise logical model, right? So you would have a docs fact around that. For a chief data officer, it was more about you need to get your ownership established and get the business users involved and so on and so forth. So you learned by being in market. By being on those webinars, by being on the straight shows, you'd have a lot of time to really, okay, this didn't work. Let me try something else. This didn't work. Oh, this seems to, okay, the eyes light, right? So you have a lot of instant feedback to try things out, but you got to try them out.
1: Nice. So we have another great question from an audience member. Ari Heljaka from Helsinki is asking, before finding the pricing model and structure that you're using today, what were some of the big lessons about it? you had to learn the hard way over the years? That
2: question implies that today we have a pricing model and structure that works and that we only have one of them. So let's assume that's completely true. What are some of the lessons that we learned? So some things were you really had to learn from your business. So what we noticed was we have this role called a data steward, um, which is a really, really tiny fraction of an employee population at the customer. Right. So, but they would be having an active uh, role, whereas everyone else in the organization is more passive. So only consumer. Consumers, we made free, and then the other ones we made banked. So that was a lesson we learned. And then when we tried to change that model, you could always see that there was a resistance to it. We went through the whole cycle from perpetual licenses in the early days, then 2014-ish, move to Please is what our investors told us. And right now we're doing experiments also with consumption-based models for certain parts of the software. But all the other lessons that we learned, at some point in time I was responsible for product for about four or five years or so. So I did a pricing model change myself, big exercise. And then we'd have one of our sales leaders who was experienced, and he said, Well, Stan, whatever new model you're gonna come up with, make sure first of all that salespeople have been involved in it's so up you you, you wanted to give your opinion, not all of them, but you want to get correct so feedback from them. And he said, Whatever you're doing Just leave the existing customers with the existing pricing model. Leave them alone. Don't bother trying to change them. Of course, I have the model for changing it. It'll be fine. We'll try it once and then roll it out to the others. And he was right. I shouldn't have bothered. But we did. And then we lost a lot of time with that. It created a lot of friction with existing customers. But also, you know, the biggest lesson is, and I don't know if it's fully well applying that ourselves today, but it's something that I can recommend to always keep in mind and try to practice it wherever you are, but just keep it simple. People love a simple pricing model, but from, I don't know, maybe it's in our nature, then we have to come up with like sophisticated, smart things with a lot of check boxes and columns and then certain features that are included or not included. Keep it simple. People love simple pricing models. If I buy a phone, I don't want to have to build out a decision tree Hire an expert to tell me what phone I need and what price I should be paid. I want a simple model. So I would say lessons are don't be afraid to experiment. And when you're making new licensing models, consider whether you could just grandfather existing contracts and let them evolve more naturally over a number of years to a new licensing model rather than trying to force it down their throats. And also keep it simple. Just keep it simple. And then the last lesson, maybe it is strategic. Pricing, especially in the early days, it's so strategic because it's about, what comes into your company. Really treat it strategically. And then sit the responsibility, not with an employee you just hired. Yes. Keep it close to your founder or CEO or chief product chest, I would say.
0: Was was it about changing the pricing structure, or was it just about finding a way to charge more for the same thing?
2: It's not necessarily about charging more, although you always want to find ways to charge more. Almost every company I've ever worked with
0: at, at the very early stages is very deliberately, knowingly or unknowingly, they are deliberately undercharging for their product because they want to get in. Right. Right. And at some point you reach a maturity point. Where you're like, okay, I now need to start charging the real price. And that's super hard for founders to make that transition. Is that what you were talking about? Or is it just like you're pricing wrong and you had to price differently because the pricing was illogical?
2: Uh, I think it's both. I think we did both. So as coming from Belgium, style of Belgians is more, well, no, maybe they'll think it's too expensive. Right? If we would have started in America, we would have been- I think that's all founders, by the for.
0: way. I'm starting to think yes, that's every founder. It.
2: <laughs> it could be. Oh, but you, maybe because you know how much more has to go in the product, maybe you're afraid, but yes, we did in the earlier days, start low, try to get in and expand. Yes, we did the other thing. But ultimately for us, it was always about searching. When we landed with our users in the organization, it was also about all the other users that whether it's you land with the stewards at the enterprise level, you want to go to line of business or the other way around or what have you or go to other personas. So we were also always looking for a model that allowed us to scale to the rest of the organization.
0: Got it. We have a follow-up question also from Era from Valohai. And it, it's a really good question because a lot of companies struggle with this. You're right, by the way, thank you for the previous answer. How did pipeline generation change when you went more from the founder-led sales to a dedicated sales team? And then he asked, did you start outbound for de- identified
2: ICPs, for instance? So, well, thanks for the question. And I'm glad the previous answer helped. How did it change when you for more of a founder-led to a dedicated sales team? So the founder-led was really in the early days, right? The dedicated sales team, as soon as we hired Benny, who became our co-founder and awesome. our SVP of sales and marketing, one of us and others, we were on the road with him. So the founders, to the like we became a dedicated sales team with divisions and roles, of course, and responsibilities. But then a few years later, we started onboarding our first, our own sales team because we have this enterprise sales emotion. Our market is the enterprise still today, by the way. We always needed a dedicated sales team and we always needed an outbound or uh, emotion. You said something really interesting there.
0: You said you hired your first sales guy and made him a co-founder. Can you explain how that works? Because that's unique. I don't hear that very Uh, often.
2: uh, Yeah, well, remember in 2008, we were very lucky. This is 15 years ago. We learned a lot along the way and very happily So, But when we started, you hear this VC is one of, you know, a team that has all the complementarity and has all the responsibilities filled out. So that way, that's how we set out, saying, hey, we're a complete team. And then I think somewhere between six to nine months later, sh- I'm talking to Felix, I'm like, Felix, no matter know, how hard we I don't think we're going to sell anything this way. So you're already six or nine months in your very limited, limited runway in those early days. Um, you know, I think our first investment was like 750,000 euros or something like that. And we realized, okay, if you want to bring somebody on board, at that level to help us really build out our commercial organization and at the moment in time that we were super super early we needed to bring somebody experienced but we didn't have a lot to give such an experienced person irish right so we found uh, benny through some network and executive search and then he was very keen on also being a co-founder we said okay let's allow you to invest become a stakeholder and we're still in on year one you know but open down. so many for all intents and purposes became a founder of the co
0: It's super smart. I, I often find myself telling founders like you might have a missing co-founder and it sounds like you felt like you did have a missing co-founder and you found, him,
2: which is That's correct. Yep. It's, it's exactly. amazing. But we were open-minded enough when we had those conversations between ourselves to realize that but because we might as well have been stubborn to and say, no, we don't need anybody. we can handle this ourselves. Or we just need to put some BDRs on it and then we'll solve the problem. We were open-minded enough to realize we have a significant problem that we need to solve. And through the guidance of our experienced board at that time, also, Before. they helped us navigate to the right type of profile. But it's a, there's a funny story about good feeling this skill that you love. And for the people in the audience as well. So, we went through an executive search finding different candidates. And the amount of candidates you're going to find as an early stage enterprise software company in Belgium with nothing, right? Nothing that's speaking in your favor. You're not necessarily going to find a lot of them, right? It's because, first of all, Belgium is the big market for those profiles in the first place with ent- international experience. But then we got those candidates and you're doing all the interviews. Now, time is also passing by and you're seeing that runway take away. It's like you're getting nervous, right? Because as soon as that person starts, they still need to start building out pipeline and everything, right? So it's so we started when they join. So we found a candidate that seemed really good, went through interviews, went to interviews with our board. We went to lunches and dinners with them. And then at the end, with that specific candle, all on paper it looks really good. And then the interviews, everybody liked it. But I said to the co-founders, I don't know, my gut is telling me no. And everybody's stressed out, frustrated. Like, oh, look can stand with his problems all the time. And it's, can you explain why? No, you can't explain why. It's a gut feel. I don't feel like this is the person that will be good for us. I can't explain it other than the gut feel feeling. And unfortunately, we were on the same page and we said, okay, let's not do it. Right. And then after that, we kept searching. So again, time, nail biting, all that stuff. And then we found and came across Benny and then Benny was the one who didn't make it happen for us. But if it wasn't for that gut feel, we would have gone with the other person and that wouldn't have made the success quite confident.
1: So trusting your gut is, I think, really important. And it kind of segues nicely into the next question we have for you is can you speak a little bit about Calibra's company culture and how it contributes to the success of the business? And I guess one aspect would be being able to trust your gut and others willing to take that leap of faith with you. But can you talk about other aspects?
2: Yes, yes. And we do have a whole list of our values right now. And I just see that I list them correctly. So we wrote them down, right, on the culture, because the company is now... 1,200 people or something like that. And especially in a remote world as we are today, you can't always see and experience everybody face-to-face, face, right? So gut feeling translates a lot harder over a Zoom. In. But essentially, as the company grows fast, you do need to Get more deliberate and write down those values. So for us, that became one Kodibra. No matter where you are, we are all working with each other for the customer. Our work matters, right? Even if you're, you're writing only a dumb pieces documentation or fixing a small bug or being a new BDR, it all matters for us. Being the customer's champion. And I'm going to come back to that one and bring it back to our origins, where our culture came from maybe. Being open, direct, and kind also. So I was always very open. I was always very kind. Maybe in the earlier days, I was necessarily always so. I was open and direct, but not always kind, right? So I learned it helps a lot better if you're a little bit kind when you're dealing with other people. Embrace and drive change is another one. Since 2010, 12, Libra has always been a different company every year. This year included. So people have to be. Able to deal with a lot of change because our market is changing, we're growing, change is inevitable. And then leading with confidence is also a lot of value. So, you know, we wrote them down and we're constantly still disseminating them. And culture is lived, right? So, if you're seeing somebody do the wrong thing, do a non one Calibra thing, you should call it out immediately, right? So, otherwise, it perpetuates and you have to try and maintain it as the company grows. Now I'm going to come back to that be the customer's champion. Culture is really ingrained in, in yourself and in your actions. So I remember we were at the university and we were doing research around semantics. Now, 95% of the world's population looked at semantics like Tim Berners, Lee, semantic web, RDF and all of that stuff. And the research we did was with something else. So whenever we tried to publish papers, it was always the wall in our face again because we weren't following like the mainstream semantics lovers, right? So we did it slightly differently, but we we thought we were doing it the right way. So there was a lot of that salmon swimming upstream kind of thing that we had, that we still have today at Collibra in our market. Because the chief data officer, when they started to come into play, they were a new executive role. And no matter if they were giving the role with a lot of budget or a little budget, it's a new leadership role. So they get political battles, change management battles, they get budget constraints, what have you. So they, in their organizations, are data change agents. They have to be champions of data in their own company, still today, right? Still today. And that was perfect for us because we were, in our culture, that salmon swimming upstream kind of thing was inside of us. We always were used to having to do things in a bit of a harder way than following the mainstream what others were doing based. Even today, what Kodibra does is not what other people say data mm-hmm. intelligence is. We like this is what it is, and we know what it is because we've been seeing it, that we know it's the right thing. And even today people look at data intelligence and see something else that we always see. So that being the customer's champion is it goes all the way to being a salmon that swims upstream.
0: Cool. I've got some questions on go to market, but I also want to make sure we touch on, on- on the modern data stack. And I think it'd be interesting to change gears a little bit and to talk about that. And I think a lot of the people on the call or that will listen to this will have a lot of opinions about the modern data stack. Some people will not. So let's just start by defining that. What is meant by the modern data stack? Like a short answer that I've got hopefully more interesting question for you. So what does the phrase modern data stack mean to you?
2: Well, you know, it's, it's one of those, There's a lot of buttons to push. You'll find a lot of buttons pushing or gives your opinions. But essentially, there is some aspect of the modern data stack being innovation. There is some aspect of the modern data stack being trying to be different from what exists today. Let me preface this a little bit. We've been in this market for 15 years. So we've seen old school beta warehouses and ETL. We've seen NoSQL come, go stay, right? We've seen the cloud data, the data platforms, the Do, for Cloudera, mentor that were going to change the world, and then we saw everything move into the cloud. All of that has happened over the past 15 years, and is still happening today. So that modern data spec, data stack aspect, there are components that are that make sense. There's a cloud data warehouse now. You're doing ingestion, copy pasting from your CRM application directly into your warehouse where you have the raw data. zone. You have things like reverse ETL. So there are technological innovations in the modern data stack. But there's also just marketing budgets, I would say, from startups that are trying to say, we're not that Hadoop stack. We're not that cloud stack. But we're a new piece that fits in there, and we're a modern data stack. And I would say be cautious because already the modern data stack is becoming a little bit old. They first came out with that terminology a couple of years ago. I can guarantee you five years from now, it might not look that modern anymore. And especially if you look into large enterprise, modern for them is they chase every new shiny toy. But at the same time, they're also stuck with a lot of their legacy going back to those original data warehouses and even main. So you have to take into account that reality as well.
0: So one one question I wanted to get your perspective on, I think this is relevant, this is interesting for Calibra, but I think it's also relevant for a lot of other companies that are in a similar category, right? Or, sorry, solving similar kinds of category creation problems. One way of understanding Calibra, and I, please, if this is not correct, let me know, but one way of understanding Calibra is like, it's a system of engagement layer on top of the sort of the data tooling that I already have, right? Yes. the question is, why is there room for that layer? In other words, why doesn't Looker or Tableau or Snowflake provide that? What is it about the market or the technology stack or the way your customers are using their infrastructure that creates a space for you guys to exist, right?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So we can dig into that a little bit because I do want to make, be very clear to everyone in the audience here. Doing a category creation strategy as a company, you need to do that very deliberately. Right? It's going to cost you a lot of time and money. It's going to require a lot of ecosystem collaboration with your competitors as well in some certain ways, right? And it's not that easy. So it's not something you do and then you change it a year later. You have to be really consistent because it's going to take you a while to create a category. Why is there space, right? So remember data intelligence, is bigger name of the category that we are in today, but it came from that nugget of data governance. And governance, just like management, there are different layers, right? So let's apply that to data governance and data management. Data management being, and I'm being very simplistic here, so you're storing your data somewhere in a database, you're moving your data somewhere, an ETL, pipeline, and ingest. You're putting it somewhere for consolidation, like a data warehouse or a data lake, and then you're doing some reporting, like tableaus or whatnot on top of it. In a nutshell, this is data management. I know it's a lot more complex. Let's leave it at that for a second. In each of those components, you have mayors, like Lukos, like you said, Snowflake, and a whole bunch of other ones. But just like governance in regular management speakers, like your boards, for example, example, and management is like your executive team, the board makes sure that management does the right things in the right way. Similarly, for governance... You're doing data management in the right way. So what are examples of doing governance? You're assigning owners, for example, you're trying to define data sets. But if you say, for example, we need to do an owners for our customer data, and you're trying to do that in your data warehouse component in Snowflake, for example, or in Redshift or in one of the other ones, how are you going to define ownership around that data set there? When that data is inevitably going to move through those ingests, through those ETLs and, what, and pipelines and whatnot, it's going to end up in these reports. Are you then always going to go look back into your warehouse where the ownership is established? No, you need to solve that data governance, data intelligence problem at the layer above, not at the data management layer, but at the layer above it. It needs to work independently of the tools because by definition, your data is going to move through all of those tools, but the ownership and the rules and the policies and the processes are independent of those tools. That makes sense. It
0: doesn't. It's not quite clear to me why it would be illogical, let's say. well, Why would it be suboptimal for one of those other layers to try to add this, like, I mean, Snowflake has a very aggressive, we're going to be the data cloud, right? I'm sure they look at companies like Calibra, Big ID, whatever, like that management layer tooling. I'm sure there's someone at Snowflake who thinks they can do this, right? And on some level, my question is stupid because every big company could theoretically do everything. And that's not a smart question. But I guess my question is, was there something about the way you guys are approaching it that says, look, it's actually better for this to be a separate layer. There's a reason why. Even though they could do it, it's better if we do it. Because your customers would rather all All things be equal. They'd rather have one vendor than two,
2: right? I agree. I agree. But even remember, our market is an enterprise market. So they are going to have their data in all sorts of places and tools. They're only going to put it in more tools. But think, for example, of something easy like you requesting access to data. Or you're trying to find data in the catalog, right? You're requesting access to data and the data is sitting in Snowflake. That's fine. But the data is also sitting in those other places. Does that mean that I should ask for access to that data in all of those places? Like, I have to ask for access in Snowflake and in Looker and in all of those other places. Or is there a place on top where I can just go in the catalog and not, hey, I want access to customer data, and then it sorts that out across the different places where your data is being stored. So there is a need for a separate layer that a single vendor, even the big ones. Like there's no company in the world that says, okay, I have all of my data in Microsoft, for example, even in those big players, at least at the enterprise yeah. level, right? I have all my data in SAP. No, these large enterprises have data in many different big vendors. So one of those vendors cannot solve it outside of their own silo, of their own technology, because they need also to have integration and collaboration with those other vendors. And that's not even in their interest to build that.
0: I think there's a strong case for governance tooling to be an independent category. I think that makes sense. One final question. We're almost at time, but I want to ask you, and in the three minutes we have left, the hottest thing in the world right now is LLMs and advanced AI tooling. I don't think this is much of a threat to where you guys are right now, given what you do. But I do wonder, what do you think the impact of those toolings, of those capabilities are over the long run on the enterprise data stack in, in, in specific, given that if you look at a lot of companies that you know that we've backed and have made a lot of money for a lot of people have done really well, a lot of what they were trying to do is you pull data out of wherever it is, make some sense of it, and then present it back to people in some useful way. Maybe you do an action, maybe a human does an action, but there was a, that was difficult to do, right? Connecting all that data, making sense of it, analyzing it, running all those algorithms, doing all that synthesis, then presenting it in a coherent way and reaching the right conclusions. At least theoretically, and for that, you have to understand all this piping and work, right? At least theoretically, some of these sort of very complicated AI models are getting to the point where maybe you could do that automatically. In other words, if you just point the model, maybe not today, but maybe in a year or two years or three years, just point the model at all the APIs and all the data sets, and it will just be able to answer any question. Does that change the way companies will think about what their data stack should look like and how to think about it? When you won't need, when a lot of the work that we've all been doing to build tooling that did a lot of this stuff is going to be much easier to build? Or is that just a naive view?
2: I'm hopeful that what you're saying will come true at some point in time, right? That some of those exciting things we're starting to see come out of the woodworks now, like a chat GPT for text or like a stable diffusion for images. There's a lot of interesting things happening there, but at this point, a lot of them also seem like more illusion basis like than there are databases because no matter how eloquent of a response you're getting it might not be a factual response it just looked good and looks like a person could have written it doesn't mean it's correct but let's project this out a few more years right those sorts of tools and technologies get applied on enterprise data you're indeed meeting the problem of having that connectivity all over But you're also, you can't have a chatbot come up with an adoption base that tells a customer, here's your mortgage, and it's like a totally wrong number for a totally wrong base, no matter how good it looks. So what AI and those technologies are going to do, they are going to force the organizations to treat their data more as an asset, right? They're going to have to be more sure about where the data came from that they're feeding into the model. They're going to be more sure. They're going to have to be more sure that the quality of that data is up to par. So there's a lot more diligence in terms of quality and process and ownership and responsibility, traceability and lineage. They're going to have to be a lot more diligent about that if they want that AI to work for their customers without necessarily turning into like a racist or saying the wrong thing. So it will put a lot more pressure. And the other thing that's going to happen, in my view, is that. The regulators, you're already starting to see that happen. If the organizations don't do it themselves, the regulators will say, whatever fancy algorithm you're using, you're going to have to prove to me that, for example, there's no bias in there, right? And then uh, that you're giving us correct answers to your customers and that privacy is guaranteed. So and so for So, In my view, all of the AI stuff is super exciting. and will force organizations to be a lot more diligent about their data assets. So for the next 10 years, I think it's going to be exciting in data land. That's for sure.
0: Stan, thank you so much for doing this. I know we had a last minute change due to flight issues on my side. So I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate the quality of the conversation and the candor and the honesty and the perspective into the early days of Calibra and the future of data. So thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me over, Gil. Thank you. And good luck to everyone on the call. Thank you so and much. choose your bank wisely. Okay.
0: <laughs> thank you.